morning everybody. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Andrew and it's my privilege to be able to pastor here um, and even continue to do that here on, online um, as we worship this morning. And it's always good to be together as a family and I know that it doesn't feel as together right now, but I, and I say this every week and, and I, I really, you know, I really pray that that happens and hope that it happens that you know, there's different ways that we can make each other feel like we're thinking of each other and you know just let me encourage you to continue to do that during the week in various ways um, for now let's just open our bibles what i'd like you to do is just open your bibles to romans chapter 3 um, and the reading will, will be on the screen but uh, i encourage you to have your bibles open because there's going to be a couple of other readings during the message um, and so it's always handy to have your Bible open and, and, you know, if you want to underline something or highlight something or say, I'm, I'm going to come back and have a look at that a little bit later. But um, for now, we're looking at Romans 3. Romans 3, and I'm going to read um, from verse 10, just verse 10 to 20, which is on the screen there. And this is the chapter on where Paul is addressing this whole concept of righteousness. Are we right before God? And the underlying probably story or you know, reading between the lines that the Jews who were the religious, the church if you like, or the, they considered themselves the believers, you know, God's chosen, probably considered themselves like, you know, and the things that they did made them worthy, you know, made them um, worth saving if you like, or, or made God love them or, or, or set them a place in heaven or, you know, made them right before God. And... There was a sense where it was about what they did and how they contributed and maybe the rules that they had kept and the things that had developed over the ages. And Paul kind of takes this chapter to actually redirect them and help them to see where righteousness comes from. And that's just the context of this, this um, chapter. And in verse 10 he says, as it is written, after, the, you know, um, after he asks the question, are Jews better? He says, well, as it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and, and in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And Paul is quoting a few Psalms there in the earlier part. Now just keep this scripture in your mind as we're looking at the theme uh, uniquely reformed and we've started it last week by looking at denominations and, and what that might mean if you're part of a reformed church but we're looking at uniquely reformed what are the values what are the doctrines what are the practices that are unique to us and why do they even matter um, and I guess the truth be told not all of them are only unique to this the Christian Reformed Churches of Australia, that would not be fair to say. Perhaps some practices we might find down the road are, but not all of these are only unique to the CRC, but many of them 
do have their roots. A lot of them have their roots in Reformed heritage, Reformation heritage, even though they're shared by other denominations. And we talked about that last week about different denominations, etc. Today I'm going to talk about total depravity. And it's kind of, it's a, it's a, I guess it's something that many of us asked questions about a long time ago. Um, and you may have thought about it, you might have read about it, you might have been hearing it since you've, you've been in the Reformed churches for a long time, or it might be something totally new for you. And we're kind of zeroing in on a particular doctrine. But before we do that, what I want us to do is just like imagine it's um, like a drone. We're going we, we, to lift off and have a bit of a wider look at the context of, of where that came from before we zero in. Perhaps one of the best-known doctrinal identifiers of the Reformed Church, or the, the things that, that, that people identify with Reformed churches or Reformed theology churches, is what they call the five points of Calvinism. You might have heard that before, and it might be totally new to you. Now, the key thrust of these five points, or the key emphasis of these five points, is around salvation. That only God exclusively God, exclusively Him, is what brought about salvation. So it questions the whole thing. Is it only God or is it a partnership? And that's where it came from. Do we contribute? Can we contribute to salvation? Can we contribute to our goodness? And these five points deal with that and help us to understand more about that. Let me give you a brief history. And this is going to be a fly across history. Um, and... Not detailed at all. What I'm going to do next week, and I'll mention this a little bit later, next, next week I'm going to put up a couple of links if you want to look a little bit more at history, if you're interested in that, or if you want to look a little bit more into it, I'll put a few links for you to, um, I'll send them around for you to have a look at. But here's a quick history. Um, not so deep. So, back in the 5th century, there were two guys called Pelagius and Augustine. And that's where we have an early record of this discussion. Pelagius... Uh, felt like, hang on a minute, you know, surely we can contribute, we, we do something to make ourselves good enough for God to accept us, where Augustine refuted that and stood firm on the fact that there is nothing that we could do. And in the 5th century, there was lots of toing and froing by these two theologians, talking about that, writing about that, arguing about that, and, you know, we don't do that anymore nowadays, but they would get out in the town square and have arguments or public discussions about it. And as we move through history, I said this was going to be fast, we have the eventuation of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church probably had its roots more in, in, in the, th the thoughts of Pelagius, um, but they would call themselves semi-Pelagian. They kind of came a little bit of the way, um, but they still fell on the side of Pelagian where there are things that we could do to, um, to achieve salvation, or ways that we could contribute to achieve salvation. Now, important to note right now, and, and this will become apparent, is that the Roman Catholic Church also was, um, you know, they elected government heads. The government head or the king or whatever, or, or the governing authority was the head of the Roman Catholic Church. And so they would appoint the priests. They would appoint the elders or the bishops of the church. They would appoint the ministers and, and even the school teachers. So that was all done through the church. That was the church and the, and the state being the same vehicle, if you like. Scoot forward to the 16th century, and we had two men called Luther and Calvin. These two men were quite deep into reform thought, and if you know the story of Luther nailing his 95 theses to the wall, he actually got into con contradiction with the Roman Catholic Church, 
Calvin had written his institutes, how he, uh, what he believed. He believed that you know, we could not contribute to salvation. And they were both hugely influential forces in Reformation getting bedded down, in the whole sense of Reformational theology. Right back to Augustine, they leaned right heavily on his information. Now in the 16th century, and this is where it will become important, the Netherlands were under Spain, under the Spanish king. And there was the revolt and they achieved their freedom from the Spanish king. But the systems in the Netherlands, in, and the Netherlands was then what we know now as Holland and Belgium. That was one, one country. Now the systems there were still operating under the Roman Catholic system. The Spanish king was Roman Catholic. He, the Spanish king, was the one who appointed all the pastors. He appointed all the elders. He appointed school teachers. He appointed, and he ensured that the thought was that the 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 theology followed the Pelagian rule. And so there was a heavy influence in theology, except in the north of Holland. In the north of Holland, there was a, a firm, um, if you like, field of thought or firm work in deep reformational theology. So as political, politically things were beginning to be solved, they weren't really being solved in the religious issues. There was a divide in the Netherlands, which was that large country there. There was a heavy Calvinist north who leaned heavily on Calvin's teaching, Luther's teaching, and they had been part of the revolt against the Spanish king, not because they didn't like the king, but because they didn't like the fact that the Roman Catholic rule made them appoint things and determined their theology. And you had the Roman Catholic South. Meanwhile, in the 17th century, I told you this was going to be fast, moving a little bit ahead, there'd been a split in theology, theological teaching even in the Netherlands. There was a man called Arminius, who was at one of the large theological institutions that, by the way, still exists in the Netherlands. And he started writing uh, and leaning into some of this thought, this Pelagian thought, or this thought that perhaps there's something that we do to contribute to salvation. He wrote articles to reject certain Calvin, Calvinist teachings. And those articles were on five points. Now, these became quite hot in the country. Remember, Holland is still a little bit political and, and the church still had a little bit to do with the, the political driven, drivenness of the country. And so they had a synod. Now, you have just heard um, Eunice pray about our synod. We still have synods. But they called a synod together to get a whole lot of reformed people together to discuss Arminius's five rejections of Calvinism, five areas that he rejected Calvinism. And they had people from delegates from the UK, there was reformed churches in the UK, in Geneva, Switzerland, in Scotland. The French people weren't allowed to travel, but they were wanting to be part of it, so they would have got the papers afterwards. The end of that synod was they rejected what they called the remonstrance. They were the people that stood against these five points of Calvinism. And they reaffirmed the five points in discussion. And that's how these five points of Calvinism came about. These five points don't uh, exhaust the riches of Reformed theology. Uh, they're not a conclusive list of everything that the Reformed Church believes. The Reformed faith involves many other elements of theological and church confessions. So then the so-called five points weren't chosen 
by the Calvinists as a complete summary of their teaching. They emerged out of the Synod of Dort, which was a place that was, uh, the Synod was held in a place called Dordrecht in Holland. They emerged out of the Synod of Dort as a response to the Arminians who chose these five points to disagree with. So for us, when we're looking at uniquely reformed, all that's to say, it would be good to start at these five points. It would be good to start at where there was a challenge and how we stood against it, what it looks like. So what are they? What are these five points? Um, and they're traditionally known, um, five points of Calvinism, and they're traditionally known as, and you'll see on the screen there, uh, a little bit of an acronym, the, the, the letter TULIP, and, and it quite, um, and it, it, you know, the Dutch probably liked that. It was quite a, uh, a good thing for the Dutch people. And I'm not sure how much they twisted the words around to make it work out to be TULIP. But anyway, the first one's total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. These are the five areas that came under heavy discussion that would go right back to pointing to what Paul talked about, righteousness. Can we contribute to our righteousness? Now, the acronym TULIP is, is actually, funnily enough, the acronym TULIP is only developed since the 1930s. Before that, there was no TULIP acronym, yet these five points were there. These five points are focused on the central act of God saving sinners, us, you and me. Why it was necessary, how it was achieved, and mostly that God, his sovereignty is central in these five points. That God is the player, actually the only player. They show us that it's God's work and it's our total dependence on him from the beginning to end and that's necessary so you start with total depravity right through the perseverance of the saints that our total dependence is on God now some people have found the choice of words or language hard confusing hard to hear some of the even some of the language in our modern day it's kind of like harsh language isn't it modern day use of this language might conjure up wrong ideas you know uh, and there's been attempts at different words, different ways to describe them, different acronyms even. You know, things like radical depravity or completely sinful or, or sovereign election and, and using different terms. John Piper likes to summarise them like this. And this is, I find this helpful. Have a look at this. State of man before salvation, wholly defiled. The work of the Father in salvation, unconditional choice. The work of the Son in salvation, personal salvation. The work of the Spirit in salvation, supernatural transformation. The state of man after salvation, in faith, perseverance. Now over time, we're going to have a bit of a look at some of these sorts of things, but today I want to focus on total depravity, that first one. But as we walk through these for the next little while, when, I, when we get opportunities to walk through these and move forward, my prayer is that not just that we would understand them as concepts. I have to confess, I got caught in that in these last couple of weeks. You read the history, you read deeply into the concepts, and you get caught in the concept of it, and you, you start feeling like you've, you've made a, a, a theoretical discovery or a theoretical connection, and everything starts to make sense, which is not bad, but my prayer is that we won't just understand them as concepts and ideas, or theological doctrines that might be good. 
but that we see them as a spotlight on God. And that that spotlight, when we, when we see them shine that spotlight on God, that there will be an increase in our sense of wonder and astonishment at his work of salvation for us. And that it would make us glad and grateful. And that's been my prayer in the latter half of this week, that I would be astounded by salvation, that, that this makes salvation even greater, even more astonishing, even more alive for us. My prayer is that what lingers in our hearts is that that's what lingers in our hearts, rather. And that the joy these things release in us, that they would compel us to passionately worship God, to glorify Him through our lives and with our lives. So I want to keep that in the background. We're going to talk about technical stuff sometimes, but I want them to shine the spotlight on God. I want us to pray and understand why this is important for us to know. And can I say again, I'm not able to go deep or completely unpack the depth or the importance of these doctrines in, in just a sermon. And I'll probably miss some details, particularly some of you out there that have done a lot of reading on this will think, wait, there's this and there's this. That's true. But I do plan to send out some recommended reading and watching if you want to go deeper and if you want to have a look more. I want to start with a story. When we think about total depravity, I want to start with a bit of a story or just an example. You know, the, you've all heard the stories of quicksand, haven't you? You know what happens in quicksand. And it's actually similar. I was reading a story this week about a guy that fell into a grain silo. You know what happens when you fall in quicksand or into a grain silo? That the best thing to do is do nothing. In fact, the more that you do, the worse the situation comes. The more you try to help yourself, the worse it becomes. Someone, I, read an, an, uh, I read something on quicksand that they said to, to actually extract, for a human being to extract one leg out of quicksand would take 10,000 tons of force, which is physically impossible for a human being. When a man falls into a, silo, a grain silo, when he moves, every time he moves or tries to do something to move, he actually sinks further because as soon as you move, grain falls into that spot. Same way as they ask that people to, in a grain silo, breathe really shallow. If you take a deep breath in, the grain feels that and it'll actually compress your, your chest. Now what do you have to do when you're in quicksand or you're in a grain silo and someone comes to rescue you, you don't help them. The worst thing you can do, you have to rely completely, you have to depend completely on the person rescuing you. Anything that you do, anything that you think you can contribute to helping yourself is actually only going to make it worse and it's actually going to make it harder for the rescuer to rescue you. You have to be dependent. I want you to keep that picture in your mind of the quicksand and of the grain silo. So we look at total depravity that sounds really harsh, doesn't it? And particularly the word depravity. You know, what does it mean? When we think of depraved, you start thinking of axe murderers and, you know, and, and, and conjures up all sorts of serial killers. And, and you think, well, wait a minute, that's not me. That's not who I am. You know, why would I say that I was totally depraved? Well, there are lots of long and wordy definitions for total depravity, and you can look them up when you have some time. And they're all probably pretty right. But simply put, here's what it means. Every part and aspect of our being is corrupted by sin. And specifically, that our will, 
Our human will is bent in on itself so that we will not seek God. We will not choose God in and of ourselves. We need God's effectual grace, his powerful working to overcome our rebellion and to draw us to our Saviour. Total depravity goes to the heart of humanity, the heart of humans. Way beyond just the actions, way beyond the things that you do. It goes to our heart. The Bible tells us this in so many places, doesn't it? We all know that, that the scripture that says the heart is wicked. Who can know it? You know, and when the Bible talks about the heart, the Bible talks about our guts, the, the very being of who we are, the, very, the, the motivations, the essence of who we are. Is wicked who can know it. The Bible's really clear on that, isn't it? Let's have a look at how Paul experienced that in another scripture in Romans, a little bit further on in Romans chapter 7. And this is one we all know about too. And, and this, is, this is probably the human side of Paul saying, this is what it looks like. And he says from verse 15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know, and this is a key verse, verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And this is typical Paul who speaks in kind of confusing ways, but basically he's saying, I can't get it right no matter how much I want to contribute, no matter how much I want to do it right, I can't get it right. So how do we, what does that look like? You know, early in our earlier reading, in that chapter 3, wasn't it, where Paul was talking about no one is righteous, not even one. And if you read further in there, you'll see that he straight after that he says, but now. And he points to where righteousness comes from. You know, and, and Paul talking about the law. The law is, was really, when he was speaking to the people listening, when he said the law... What it said to them is everything that you're trying to do, every structure you've set up, every rule that you've put in place, the intention behind those guys, those guys and girls, is really just to make, for you to feel like you can contribute something. For you to feel like I can do it. Or, or for you to sense I don't need to depend 100% on God, I have a part. You see, our fallen nature doesn't and can't choose for God. Our sinful corruption is so deep and so strong that, as Paul would say it, we're slaves to sin. And we're unable to overcome our own rebelliousness. And, and you see that in Paul's, well, I'm unable to get it right. I'm, I'm unable to overcome my own blindness. And the doctrine of total depravity says that the inability to save ourselves from ourselves is total. It's complete. We're utterly dependent on God's grace to overcome our rebellion. Even to give us eyes to see where we are falling short. And then we're utterly dependent on God to draw us to the Saviour. We need God. We need to surrender. 
And that's probably why total depravity is the first of these five pillars. We need to know that we are completely and utterly dependent on God and His way. Even if it seems, if it seems offensive or unfair or hard to understand, as we might see. People, humans, us, we find this truth difficult. Because we're sin-filled, we, we have this independent streak. We, we want to feel like we're contributing. All humans do. And so it's totally not surprising that the Pelagians and the Roman Catholics and the Remonstrants wanted to counter this very doctrine. Because they too wanted to feel like that. We all do. Because it made them and it can make us feel helpless and, and it makes us feel utterly dependent as humans. And we want independence, don't we? We don't want surrender. Surrender is not our natural go-to. Surrender is not the first thing that comes up in our minds. Arminianism says it's a combined effort. God makes an offer of salvation and then he's dependent on us accepting that offer or choosing him. And that feels kind of good, doesn't it? You can, you can almost feel like, yeah, I could, I could go along with that. It feels good because we want to feel like that we can contribute, that we can help or, or have a hand in our salvation or something that we have done has actually given us a leg up, if you like. That somehow we can partner with God. You know, He does His bit. Sure, it's a big bit. But then we add our little bit as well. But to know that that's not how salvation works messes with our pride, our sinful nature. Having to say, I can't. Having to say, I didn't. Having to say, I won't ever. Or I'm not enough. Or not good enough. Or nothing I do. It's counterintuitive and it can be offensive to our nature. And that's the point, isn't it? Our nature is to go against. To say, I don't need you, God. Or... I can help. And it starts, you know, have you seen kids when you try to, you get this little kid trying to put together a, a Lego block and, and the dad goes up and says, let me help you. No, I can do it myself. I can do it myself. I don't need you to help me, you know. And those of you that have had kids might know that. Those of you, we've all been kids, we know that. I can, I can do this. Just leave me, let me do it. So it's not surprising that, that these were the five things that they affirmed. That we're dependent, that, we're by that we're, we by nature rail against them. And, and we intellectualise them, we come up with alternatives. And I've had discussions in the past and I've read articles where they're deeply intellectual and, and discussions with alternatives. Well, yeah, but maybe it's this, maybe we're reading this wrong and, and in different interpretations and nuances. It's our nature to not be dependent. Because it means actually having to let go and let God. And that's the point of total depravity, isn't it? Our sinful, fallen nature blocks us from letting God. Letting go and letting God. Choosing for God. In fact, it makes us even unable to do that. And it's precisely our state of total depravity that wants to disprove the doctrine of total depravity. It's precisely because we have this independent streak that we work so hard to disprove it or, or try to explain it in a different way. Human sin is so ingrained it takes God to break through that. And He is totally able to do that. 
The truth is, only sinners need a saviour. And if we could contribute at all, we don't need the cross. We don't need surrender. And that's the truth of it, isn't it? So some might say, does that mean, so total depravity, does that mean that we can't do good things? Like, are we incapable of doing good? No. Someone once said, total depravity frames humans not as good people who sometimes mess up, but as messed up people who with God's help can do some good things. And so you're left thinking, how does good even happen in the world? How does, you know, if, if, if humanity is so totally depraved, how does good even happen? How do we do good? And there is, a, a, there is um, there's another doctrine, if you like, called common grace, and we don't have time to get into that. Um, if you want to read up about that, have a read about it. And that's God helps us messed up people to be able to do good things. Total depravity doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could possibly be. It means that no part of our person or our personality is uncorrupted or untouched by sin. In our mind, in our intentions, in our emotions. And so then, if you think about that in terms of salvation... Which is the importance for all this, isn't it? This is, you know, the, the five points of Calvinism aren't just about explaining who we are. They actually unlock our vision of understanding how great salvation is. So if you think about it in terms of salvation, it means that fallen people, you and I, we can't rescue ourselves from our guilt. It's an ethical can't, and because we won't. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that we're by nature hostile to God. We won't submit and we cannot submit. He actually uses the word cannot. R.C. Sproul said this in his teaching. He said, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Let me read that again. We're not sinners because we sin. So it's not because we've done something wrong. Now we're, de now we're defined as sinners. We sin because we are sinners. And that's why we sin. It goes to our identity. It's who we are. And we can do good. We can be good. But it's not to make God love us or accept us. It, it doesn't. Our being good, our doing good doesn't make God say, Wow, I'm going to let this guy into my heaven now. Or I'm going to love this person now because look at the list of good things that he's done. I'm going to accept this person. That's not the case because he already does love us and accept us completely. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, the Christian does not think that God will love us because we're good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. So again, it's God working. And it's important to be reminded again, though, that this is not about what we do. And that's where the Jews and, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees fell into the trap. This is not about what we do. It's who we are. It's our nature. And this really matters. Because if we think of depravity in terms of what we do instead of who we are, then the good news becomes good works. See, if the problem is our works, what we do... 
then we just need to reform our behaviour, don't we? But if the problem is fundamentally who we are, then we need a new nature. We don't simply need reformation. We need regeneration. We need a new life. And that's what God in Jesus did. And this is why this doctrine is so transformational. This makes salvation, the gospel, not just good news, but great news. This makes Jesus' work on the cross even more astonishing. We couldn't help. There was nothing we could do. In fact, we were flat out pushing against God. We were flat out working against God and sinning. And in sin, in our nature, was, was inclined against God. Yet, in the midst of that, Christ gave his life. Jesus came and gave himself for us. And Paul reminds us of this. And there's that famous scripture isn't it? in Romans chapter 5. And we'll, we'll pop that one up for you. Verse 6 to 11. You know, we often talk about this, but just think of the impact of this. Think of, the, of, of our nature and what God did. In Romans 5, verse 6 to 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, and that would be a person that did lots of good things. Though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, we're, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received second reconciliation, regeneration, a new life. While we were sinning, while our nature was inclined against God, while we worked against all that he did, we had and we have a huge debt of sin that we can't pay. We can't help to fix it. And the doctrine of total depravity reveals God's mercy and grace to us in such a great way. It opens the door and shows us just how amazing it is that God reached, reaches, reached and reaches out to us. If I'm unable to achieve salvation in my own strength, or if, I'm, if I am not even able to help that happen, if by nature I won't even pursue it, then it truly is a gift of grace, a grace gift, isn't it? David Martin Lloyd-Jones had a little sermon illustration that he used to use. And he said, imagine that a friend of mine comes to see me and says, hey, I was at your house the other day and a bill came, bill came due and, and you weren't there, so I paid it for you. David Martin Lloyd-Jones says, well, I would have no idea how to respond until I know how big that bill was. Was it just postage due, like a little bit short on the stamp on the postage and my friend paid 20 cents and it went away and I'd say thank you very much. But what if the tax office finally found you? What if it was 10 years of back taxes that, that the government was chasing you for? What if it was an enormous debt? 
See, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, until I know how much he paid, I don't know whether to shake his hand or to fall down on the ground and kiss his feet. And so there's nothing left for us in this doc- when, when, we, when we understand this and we understand God reaching across this anyway into our lives. There's nothing left for us but to fall at his feet. And what a comfort this truth is. You and I don't need to strive to increase our chances. We don't need to worry that we're not good enough. We don't need to be concerned that our sin and our selfish heart will preclude us, exclude us from eternal life or will separate us from God. We don't need to go through life wandering and thinking, did we do enough? You know, did I, did I, did I cross the line? You know, did, I, did, did I get the, right, the percentages right? Was my contribution enough? Because praise God, Jesus was enough. He is enough. It's all God. And that's all good. It's hard to appreciate and see the depth and blessing of this truth in just a sermon, isn't it? On the surface it can seem hard and I can come across really confused because there's so much information in my head and it's really hard to get it out in a coherent way. But as I said at the start, I pray that as we understand who we are before God, it will just make what God did for us greater, more magnificent, and more amazing. See, total depravity isn't about telling you that you're total total trash. It's about being honest about our own predicament. Giving glory to God for what he's done through Christ. It's about how we become the people that God created us to be. If you like, it's the bad news that clears the path for the very best news of all. So as we move on, we'll see that total depravity is the first and perhaps the most important of the five to understand. Because if we understand that, we understand who we are, we can then understand God's moves. God the Father in His moving. God the Son, the Holy Spirit, as they move to embrace us and to draw us into the kingdom. If we humble ourselves under the truth of total depravity, we'll be in a position to see and appreciate the glory and the wonder of the work of God. My prayer is that this will draw you, draw us closer to God, to grow your passion to see him glorified in your life and through your life and into the world around us. Let's pray. God, we, um, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for many, many people that you've spoken to through history, starting with Paul and, and the apostles and the disciples as you taught them, Jesus. Establishing the word of many men of faith. And then right through history, people that have struggled with that, wrestled with that, heard your spirit whispering to them, forming them and shaping them, reminding them of your truth. But I want to thank you for those. I want to thank you, Lord, that, um, that we see time and time again your amazing grace, your amazing love for us, and the the capacity you have to reach across all that we throw into the mix and to rescue us out of that. Lord, to recognize, as I recognize, that sin has so totally captured me. 
in every facet, in every part of me, that even that is not greater than you. Even that will not stop you reaching out. Even that will not stop you claiming me, us, to be your own. Lord, and what a comfort it is that it is all you and that that's all good. What a comfort it is that, that I don't have to work hard. I don't have to wonder whether it's enough. That we don't need to do that. Christ, what you did was enough. Even while we were still sinning, Jesus, you died for us. And we're so thankful and grateful. Lord, I pray as we consider these things, I pray as we consider you in light of these things, that we see these things not just as, as great theological understandings or doctrines, but Lord, as we see them as doors, that as we open them, we enter into your presence and see an amazing, wonderful Saviour, an amazing, loving God, and that we would fall at your feet and worship you. Will that be our lot. In Jesus' name, amen.